Well, a bit of a left turn and a bit of a weird way to start a sermon, but how many of y'all saw last year's dark comedy horror movie, The Menu? Oh gosh, wow, some of you did and did not like it. Okay, <laughs> point made and taken. Um, I know it's a weird way to start a sermon, so just stick with me for one moment. For those of you who haven't seen the film, it tells the story of a group of individuals who board a boat to sail to a private island to dine at the exclusive restaurant Hawthorne, run by the illustrious yet mysterious Chef Julian Slowick. As the evening progresses, the identity of the diners and Chef Slowick are slowly unpacked. And we discover one of the main things being that none of the diners are actually there for the food. So there's the elitist social media foodie gatekeeper of the cult of celebrity chef. There's the cynical, snobby food critics who come only looking for the flaws and looking for categories to place the chef in. There's the aged couple that come not to eat, but just for a distraction from their loss in their lives and their now loveless marriage. There's the washed-up actor looking to claw his way back into the spotlight on the coattails of the prominent chef. There's the group of finance bros that are just looking to blow some company money. All of this is unpacked over the course of the movie, and, and over the course of the movie is this intricate tasting menu that moves from the initial delight and excitement of the crowd to then these high concept dishes that kind of mess with your brain and provoke interest. And then it begins to get a little weird as you have tortillas that confront people and horrifying ends, no spoilers. Now, while this movie isn't for everyone due to its dark and violent nature, so just that's your conscience to consider if you're going to watch this, it's not family movie night of like, hey, Pastor Ryan said the menu's a good movie. Let's do that with the kids. No, not at all. But what's significant about this film has been how it is um, a satire that, in the words of one reviewer, um, I think for the New York Times, said it skewers, I love it, a good pun, it skewers restaurant culture in our day and age. And specifically how the kind of foodie, fine dining, tweezer kitchen um, um, culture has been built on these continuously growing levels of novelty, of distinction, grandiose experiences, celebrity, and elitism. It's, It's ruined restaurants is the take of the film. And it's also helped fashion kitchen cultures that run on abusive behavior, burnout, unhealthy work rhythms. Uh, the word used is unsustainable. Is the word that was used both in the announcement of closure for Copenhagen's, um, like one of the best rated restaurants in the world, Copenhagen's Noma, and then just a couple weeks ago here in LA with Conby. So you have these restaurants, there's a culture of unsustainability within a kitchen staff that the argument of the film would be largely comes because of the demands of the consumer. What in the world is Ryan talking about? If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 22. Today we're continuing in the I Am series. As Isaac just noted, we're looking at the identity of Jesus in John's gospel. And today we come to what I imagine to be the fourth gospel's version of the menu. It examines the identity of Jesus, who is certainly not Julian Slowick, but also our identity. And it does it through the imagery of food and a meal that's offered, all while also skewering Elements not of toxic restaurant culture, but of a toxic church culture, a poison church culture. So if you're there in John chapter 6, verse 22, I'm going to invite you to join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures today. For those of you that are able to join me in standing, John 6, 22 says, The next day, 
the next day being the day after Jesus fed 5,000 people from a couple of fish and loaves of bread. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they sailed across to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And so they asked, what can we do to perform the works of God? Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Well, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we all know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that point, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. 
Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said to these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew that from the beginning who Uh, those who did not believe, and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray uh, for a fresh look at the identity of Jesus um, as the bread of life who satisfies, as the bread of life is the one who has come down to heaven for the life of the world. God, that's the life that we want. He's the one that we want. And so we pray that today, that this would be a time of you shaping our hungers in the direction of the one that you have sent us. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. So, just like the menu here in John 6, we have a, gr- a, bo- a group who take a boat ride to an isolated place to be with a distinguished yet mysterious individual by the name of Jesus. And though he has no Michelin stars or an exclusive restaurant, the day before he's fed 5,000 people through the multiplication of a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Their conversation is centered on food and drink, and it culminates in an offered meal, which moves like the menu from initial interest and provocation to challenge and ending in the crowd's absolute horror. Cannibalism is what apparently Jesus is inviting us into. And so much like the diners of the menu, as we look at the identity of those who have made the trip across the Sea of Galilee, we find they too have mixed motives. They have desires for something other than the bread that's there to feed them. In doing so, we have within this passage commentary and warning on not toxic restaurant culture, but a poisoned church one. All of this while unpacking, once again, Jesus' I am statement. So we're going to explore all of this today and a little bit more through three movements. Uh, You'll see behind me, the first is the hunger, which is the first movement for verses uh, 22 through 34. Then the bread from 35 to 51, and then finally the offense in verses 52 through 68. We're looking at what we want, what we actually need, and the decision that we must make. An appetizer main course before a challenging dessert, we might say. So the story opens up with hunger, with a desire, with a crowd that's searching, looking for, tracking down Jesus. They sail across the Sea of Galilee out of a hunger, and they find him in Capernaum, and they launch into conversation where Jesus names the real hungers that have brought them to him. And in doing so, prompting us to consider your hungers as well. Jesus discerns why they're here and he wastes no time. In verse 26, what does he say? Truly I tell you, y'all are looking for me. Y'all made the boat trip, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. 
Jesus says, you weren't hungry because you saw or you perceived yesterday's miracle, how it was a sign. And you're not here for what that sign, what that miracle pointed to. What you're here for is because you ate the loaves and you were filled. You are here because you encountered a powerful miracle, an astonishing act, and you want another one. You are here because you are like a crowd of kids coming to a hired birthday magician, clapping and demanding, do another one. Go on, give us another. They are here, Jesus says. They are here, we might say, because they hunger for an experience. Their hunger is for more than just food. They're not here because they're still hungry. If, they were, if it was food they craved, they could have gone many other places. In fact, that's what the majority of, of yesterday's 5,000 people did. But those who remained, we're told, made the trip across the sea, are here because they are hungry for an experience. They're craving an event. And so Jesus tells them in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't go after the food that perishes, but the food that lasts to eternal life. Don't crave the thing that perishes, but hunger for the thing that lasts, which the Son of Man will give you, talking about himself. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. This verse right here, don't, don't hunger, don't work for the bread that perishes, is regularly used in sermons, calling for people not to labor after you know, possessions or career or worldly experience or whatever. Those things won't last, we're told, which is totally a biblical call. I'm just not sure that's the context of Jesus's words right here. Notice what they're asking, what they're coming to Jesus for is to experience a miracle. They're coming to experience the power of heaven being opened up, shown on earth in a clear and tangible way, whether it's a supernatural feeding of food or otherwise. We might include within this miraculous experience things like gifts of prophecy or tongues, visions, dreams, healings, powerful, profound times of worship when the spirit of God is potently felt and our sense of time is lifted. Moments of revival or awakening of outpouring like what we've seen at Asbury College in Kentucky over the past 16 days, 24 hours a day of worship now spreading to other communities. All of these moments, these miraculous moments, Jesus here refers to as the bread that perishes. Now hear me, I'm not saying that Jesus is anti-experience or anti-miracle. Keep in mind, he's just done two in the previous 24 hours. Not only did he feed the 5,000, he walked on water for his disciples last night. In this book alone, he's gonna continue go on doing miracle after miracle and sign after sign. Moments when heaven opens up and brings healing, provision, encounter, a new and deep experience and revelation of Jesus. Jesus is totally pro-miracle. Jesus is totally pro-experience. So neither am I saying that we should be anti-experience or anti-miracle. My regular prayer for our church is for us to experience an awakening within our hearts like what's been seen in Asbury and other communities. This is our next series after this is more. It's all about the ongoing work of the spirit in the life of the church. And so things like tongues and prophecy, healing, deliverance, powerful worship where the spirit of God is palpably at work within our midst. We as collective church are pro-experience. We are pro-miracle because Jesus is. So what I am saying, what I believe Jesus is saying here is that all of these good, wonderful, desirable, prayed for and longed for experiences will not satisfy you as ends to themselves but rather only when they serve as signs, as the word Jesus uses, to bring you that which lasts forever. The feeding of the 5,000 was an afternoon experience, 
meant to sign, meant to point them to the one who has what truly lasts. So the miracle was absolutely miraculous, but the effects weren't permanent. They were hungry the next morning, which is why they are here now on the other side of the sea. They're hungry again. Similarly, many of these other good, desirable experiences and gifts of the Spirit, as profound, good, powerful as they are, are not eternal. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, that is when new creation comes, the partial will come to an end. Prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge are all great gifts of the Spirit, but they are all temporary works of God in this moment of history. Like the multiplication of the bread and the fish, they are miracles that are meant to be signs of the King and kingdom of heaven and must be received as such, not as ends to themselves. In the words of the American revivalist preacher whose preaching God used to really launch the first great awakening 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards, says the mark of authentic spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with God for who he is and not just the benefits he gives you. This is precisely what Jesus names within the crowd. Their hunger is not for Jesus. It's not for who he is, but it's for the beneficial experiences, the fluttery feelings, the oh my goodness spectacle that he can provide them with. And so my personal conviction, what I've been carrying over this past week, is that as these stories of awakening and revival and outpouring continue to pop up around our country, it's evident that God is up to something within our country. And I'm praying for and longing for this. This week has brought a word of conviction to me. What's my hunger in my prayer? What's my desire in our next series, moving into the works of the Holy Spirit in our midst? Is it just for the experience? Is it for our church community, for you all to have that kind of experience? Or more poignantly, is my hunger for an experience that serves as a sign to me as the kind of pastor of the kind of community where this kind of act happens? What's my hunger for and my hunger for my experience? Or is my hunger for these things simply because of who they will bring us closer to? And I want more of him in any way that he will give of himself. You see, this is the danger, the toxic church culture here that Jesus sees and is addressing. One that is poisoned by a hunger for experience, which overly focuses on the revival at the expense of the reviver. It happens here with Jesus in John chapter 6, and it happens whenever there's a work of God. In the past generation, there was a movement of awakening and revival, and there rose up those who tried to schedule revival, building it into the calendar. They tried to manipulate people into feeling things. Some of you, this is like your experience of youth group going up. It's like God's presence is here. It's like, no, man, it's just you shaking me. Like, I don't, I don't know what this is. No, that's just me. All right, I'll add that to my list for therapy. Um, and so we, try, we had a generation that saw a work of God, wanted in on that, wanted a way to that apart from actually laying down surrender in a life of belief in Jesus. And so figured out a way, how can we concoct this? How can we manipulate this? How can we have this happen? And when, when their manipulation and scheduling of revivals failed, it's no wonder that those same churches within a couple of decades were the ones that then laid down uh, their whole mission on the sake of celebrity culture with talented musicians and preachers, fog machines, laser shows, and motorcycles on stage. If we can't give them an experience of the Spirit, we'll give them some experience. All to experience for a hungry crowd. So much of American church culture is a consumeristic hunger for experience. And church leaders who have given themselves over to being birthday clowns pulling rabbits out of hats. 
And so the past two weeks at Asbury, thousands of people flocked from all over the world to get a taste of what God was doing in that space. And so many, the majority came there with a pure hunger for God, but mixed in were those who made the trek simply for the experience of it, the spectacle of it, Christian tourism, to adopt and co-opt the moment for themselves. It's fascinating when you read interviews or listen to interviews with the leaders, all college students, leaders who stewarded the moment. They say one of the primary works of this past two weeks was protecting this moment from corruption, from people that wanted to come in that were not there for the signs, for the ones that this moment was pointing to, but to eat their fill, to consume. Jesus' invitation is to expectation without agenda. Expectation without agenda. Strong conviction, strong desire, strong expectation that when, when God's people meet in belief and trust, that he meets us and works in a powerful way. But we come with an open agenda. If he wants to come in the ordinary week where it's just kind of simple prayer, nobody comes forward, there's no big work in the spirit, but we just are reminded of of the truth of who Jesus is to us and what he's done for our lives, and then we go out to the next seven days, yes and amen. If revival breaks out and we can't fit in the space anymore and we got a new, yes and amen. We want Jesus. We want the reviver, not just the revival. We want what lasts. We want the person the experience points to, the one that God has set his seal of approval on. So what do you hunger for? When you're hunger for an experience, is it for who the experience brings you to or is it just for the spectacle, the moment of it? But the crowd isn't quite there for us or not there with us yet. They, they hone in on Jesus as that, that line, don't work for the bread that perishes. And it reveals a second hunger, one that many of us carry as well. Verse 28, what can we do to perform the works of God? So Jesus says, don't hunger for the bread that perishes, but work for the bread that lasts. Okay, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. Other translations have this as, what can we do to perform the works God requires? The idea here is they're not asking, hey, Jesus, teach us how to do the bread trick, you know, works of God, but teach us how to have that seal of the Father's approval that you just talked about on us. Specifically, they ask, what can we do? I love in the Greek, the grammar is a present, active, deliberative, subjunctive. What that means is this can be translated as, what are we to do and go on doing? Jesus, what are we to do as a habit? They are here because they hunger for an exercise. They desire a rule of life, habituated spiritual practices, a prayer schedule, fasting regimen, disciplines and works, so they may live as God requires, so they may earn his approval. They say, Jesus, tell us what to do. And Jesus' reply in verse 29 This is the work of God. This is the work God requires, that you believe in the one that he sent. Here, Jesus doesn't give an answer like the Sermon on the Mount. Teach us how to pray. And Jesus goes, all right, when you pray, here's what you say. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, here's how you do it. When you give to the poor, here's how you do it. Jesus does not here give a practice for his people, but a posture for his people, one of believing. More than just believing that Jesus exists, belief as, as the, the Greek word, as trust, as loyalty, as allegiance to Jesus, as the one that God has sent. And so hear me, Jesus is not, like he's not anti-experience, he's not anti-exercise. He is not anti-practices and spiritual disciplines. Read the Sermon on the Mount, read through the Gospels. Jesus' invitation for you to follow me and become my disciple entails living lives built around his pattern and his practices. And so neither are we to be anti-spiritual exercise. We just ended a series on the Sabbath. We're going to be picking up the practice of prayer later on this year. 
uh, really leading into specifically fixed hour prayer and other exercises and practices. Some of you have taken up um, fasting as we entered into the season of Lent, the approach towards Easter. Yes and amen. But Jesus calls out of the crowd and would ask you to consider of yourself, what's the desire beneath your hunger for exercises, for spiritual practices? Adele Calhoun, she's one of the foremost writers on spiritual practices, so pretty good authority on the topic. She says this, Spiritual practices don't give us spiritual brownie points or help us work the system for a passing grade from God. They simply put us in a place where we can begin to notice God and respond to his word to us. You see, oftentimes our hunger for spiritual practices, for the disciplines that we want to take on, is for spiritual brownie points to work this system, to get God's attention, to assure ourselves that we're good with him. I know I've seen this in myself over the years, particularly on the other side of a a moment of sin or a failure in some way, that what I do is I take on a hefty schedule of prayer. I get really rigid about Sabbath or or generosity or giving and fasting, and and I all an attempt to assure myself, like, I'm still good. And while there's totally a place for wise application of habits and practices on the other side of noticing patterns of immaturity or failure, the danger is jumping into those things as a form of bypassing the one who actually has forgiveness and life and assurance. And so the toxic church culture that Jesus is warning us of here is a church that either explicitly or implicitly communicates if you really want God's love, if you really want God's approval of your life, if you really want God's blessing, you need to do fill in the blank. They take and they turn and they corrupt the practices and habits of Jesus, which were always meant to spring out of and deepen in your belief of him, and they fasten them on a stick like a carrot. It becomes the poison of legalism. And so Jesus sees this propensity in their question, how can we do the works of God? And he drives them to the deeper thing that God requires, the deeper thing that God is looking for. And it's, 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 it's trust, it's belief, it's simple surrender to Jesus. You are the one that God has sent. In the midst of my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I trust in you, Jesus. That, Jesus says, is the, the work that Jesus requires. That is the practice that all the other practices are meant to flow from. And so notice Jesus' challenge so far, their hunger for an experience, their hunger for exercises that only dead end on themselves. He says, the thing you really need is the son of man. The thing you really need is the one that God has sent. The thing you really need to do is believe, trust, receive me as that person. And so John 6, 30, they ask, all right, Jesus, what sign then are you gonna do that we may believe in you? What are you gonna perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it was written, he gave them bread to eat. So what do they say? All right, Jesus, you want us to believe in you? Prove it. Give us something to believe. Specifically, they point back to the story of Israel. They, when, when God led uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt with Moses, and there in the wilderness, they were fed every day with manna, bread from heaven. And the belief was that as the bread stopped falling when the people of Israel went into the promised land, it would fall again when the Messiah came. It was an assumption not given to them from Scripture, but one that they just assumed and carried. And so they said, like Moses made it rain, like Moses made it rain with manna, made it hail bread, so would the awaited Messiah. And so Jesus, you want us to believe in you? Here's how to do it. Make it, make it rain and we'll believe you. They are, we might say, hungry for evidence. And so 
Again, hear me, as with all of these, this is not to say that Jesus is anti-evidence. Remember, he's doing all of these signs and miracles to show and point to who he is. Just yesterday, he fed the 5,000. He loves to give people signs. And even for us, the Christian faith today is not blind faith religion of Jesus saying, hey, follow me, believe me. It's like, all right, cool. I'm not gonna ask any questions, Jesus. It's not blind faith religion. It's grounded in history, in evidence that our belief, our faith, our lives of giving ourselves to Jesus in surrender and hope is not intellectual suicide. This is a huge part. If you've been a part of collective, you just know, like this is a normal thing to hear is the basis for our belief from this stage. But what the crowd is after in this moment is a particular kind of evidence where Jesus earns their belief by doing what they tell him. It's reminiscent of the story of Gideon in Judges 6. Some of you remember the flannel graph uh, when you were a little kid. In Judges chapter 6, angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, there's a calling on your life. Oh, mighty man of God, you are going to deliver your generation from the idolatry that has entangled them. And so guess what? Because that's what God's calling you to do, God's gonna strengthen you. Your God is going to be with you and he is sending and commissioning you in this work. And so Gideon not only has a conversation with an angel, he asks for a sign that this is all true. And there there's an altar with bread, broth, and meat. And the angel has a staff, touches it, fire, burns it all up immediately. That's a pretty crazy sign. And so even in this story, we find that God is not anti-evidence. But what happens just a few verses later is Gideon begins to pray. If you're going to deliver Israel by me, God, I'm, I'm gonna, tonight I'm gonna go outside in the front yard and I'm gonna lay down this wool fleece. And if in the morning it's wet, the dew is on this, but not on the ground, then I'll know that, that, that this is true. He comes out the next morning and it's, it's soaking. He has to wring it dry and the ground all around is dry. And so you think he's like, okay. But then the next verse comes up. But what happens? Gideon prays again. Okay, God, now the fleece is gonna be dry in the morning. If you're really gonna be with me, the fleece is dry and now the ground is wet. He comes out and it's exactly how it's so. Gideon comes out and the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. God does as Gideon requests and Gideon goes on to do the work that God had called him. But Gideon's lack of believing and trusting God in this moment is his manipulation of God will hang over the rest of Gideon's life. It'll become the thing that God must take Gideon through to deal with and it's what happens in the next chapter where he whittles down his army to a tiny little party. See, both the crowd and Gideon reveal a lack of trust displayed in playing a bartering game with God for evidence, for God to prove what he's already given ample signs and evidence for, for them to show up exactly the way, cater to exactly what I want so that I know that it's exactly for me, for you to do and to prove what you've already promised to do. And so even though Gideon and the crowd have already witnessed incredible signs, they're withholding their belief until the evidence is exactly like they want it. And so there's some of you in here today facing a similar hunger where God is calling you into something and you know it. Maybe that's, you're just, you're, you're just flirting with Christianity, flirting with jumping in and actually giving your life over to allegiance and trust and surrender to Jesus. But you're holding, God, if you really want me to follow you, then it's, you know, you have something that God's got to do to go there to do it. Maybe it's you continuing in some way in your discipleship. It's a conversation that you need to have. It's something that you need to give up. Maybe like Gideon, God has a calling on your life to do something incredible in your life 
pointing to his glory, and you're going, but it's gonna cause you to risk everything. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to risk everything in order to enter into it. And so you just you keep looking for, God, okay, if you want me to do it, then, then this, this conversation. Someone has to say that you're looking for all this evidence and sign. Maybe it's not something new. Maybe it's just you remaining faithful to where you're already at. Maybe for some of you, it's like staying in L.A., and you're like, God, if you really want me here, I'm gonna lay the fleece out and it's like soaking, everything's soaking wet right now. <laughs> Some of us, we, we just, we wanna play the fleece game. We're asking God to make it rain bread or some other miraculous sign before we move forward, trying to manipulate a pathway to faith, trying to contrive a way that obedience, a way to obedience that plays by our rules that's shaped by our own hesitations and fears. And so the warning of Jesus in this passage is that toxic church culture, which seeks discipleship without risk, which seeks obedience without holding it within fear as we move into it, and therefore without faith altogether. A toxic church culture that tries to contain God to a box to conform him and his work into our chosen methods and means of how he calls us and works in, within us. And the problem is it doesn't last long until your faith just dies because that's not how God works. But just as sad, Jesus says it actually limits us from seeing God working in new ways that might actually break our categories. Verse 32 and 33, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, you're looking for evidence to confirm your pre-existing assumptions about who I must be. You're looking at me as if I've got to be another Moses to make it rain bread. But my father, the one who actually made the manna fall, has, present tense, he says, sent bread down from heaven again. True bread that won't just fill your stomachs but give life to the world. You're asking for me to play by your assumptions and give evidence that I'm a new Moses, but I'm telling you, I'm the bread itself. You're looking for evidence that plays by your rules and your assumptions, that, and then you'll believe. And I'm telling you, the greatest miracle is standing right in front of you. What do you hunger for? Christian faith is not anti-evidence, but there is a form that Jesus is pointing out here where we are hungry for everything lining up so that we can follow Jesus devoid of any fear or any risk. And that, that I'm, it's counter what, what faith itself is. Now, it's difficult to tell how much the crowd understands of Jesus's words. You know, see, we understand that he's talking about himself, but it seems they think he's got like physical heaven bread somewhere in a box nearby. When they ask him, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. And so Jesus now turns from talking about the hunger to the bread. Jesus has spoken to the three hungers that are dead ends unto themselves, which have gone down, breed, toxic, poisoned faith, the hunger for experiences, for exercises, and for evidence. And through it all, Jesus is again, hear me, not saying any of these are inherently wrong, but they can be symptoms and signs of the absence of a, the deeper hunger not being met, what he calls the true bread that gives life to the world, which repeatedly in the passage he says is him. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. That is, I am the bread that gives life to the world. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. He says again in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, first here is the use of, of I am, the title of our series as a summary of, of the teaching last week. What Jesus is doing here is taking on the Greek translation of the divine name of God, I am, for himself. 
And so in doing so, when he's just saying, I am the bread of life, he's not saying like, it's me, bread boy. What he's saying is he's identifying first with I am. It is the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, of Abraham and Moses and Isaac, the creator God, the covenanting God, that God I am is me. And what it means for me to be I am is that I am the bread of life. Because the statement, I am the bread of life, the life, the bread that gives life to the world, like that's an insane statement to make unless you've got like, you know, God life emanating from your personhood. If anybody else said that, you'd think they're insane. This goes back to the C.S. Lewis quote last year. Jesus makes claims last year, last week. This makes claims where Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. This I am kind of weight, you just can't read past it. But the question is why the bread imagery? As we noted, he's picking up on the manna dialogue that he's had with, with the crowd. So there's the bread from heaven dynamic there, but there's a greater invitation in the metaphor. Though we tend to think today of bread as either the topping of a sandwich, as a side, or an appetizer, for most of human history, bread is the staple of life for all people. To quote from the menu again, Julian Slowick says, Bread has existed, this is, this is a whole dialogue in the middle of the movie. Bread has existed in some form for over 12,000 years, especially amongst the poor. Flour and water, what can be simpler? Even today, grain represents 65% of all agriculture. Fruits and vegetables are only 6%. Ancient peasants dipped their stale, measly bread in wine for breakfast. And how did Jesus teach us to pray if not for our daily bread? It is bread and has always been the food of the common man. Jesus uses the imagery of bread not just because of its biblical significance, but also because it's fundamental dietary importance. It's the food of survival. It's the staple. It's the thing that you must eat, but also because of its universal reception. Jesus comes, I am not the caviar of life. I am not the breakfast burrito of life. I am not, you know, you fill in the blank. The, bl- the bread. It's not the food of the elite or the Western. It's the, it's the common man's food, everyone. I had a friend who was gluten-free, and, and he's still working through what this passage means for him. <laughs> or celiac, gluten-free. Celi- he's gluten-free because he's celiac. He had gluten in him. Um, and so this is so interesting. Jesus uses this bread language because of its biblical significance, its fundamental dietary importance, and its universal reception, which is why as he moves into describing the bread, did you notice all of the, the pronouns that he uses to talk about who the bread is for? No one who comes to me, no one who believes in me, everyone who believes in me, everyone who comes to me, everyone the Father sends, anyone who comes to me. The whole point is he's bringing on that universal application of the bread, and now he's saying, yes, it's for everyone. It's for anyone. He's not just the bread for Israel. He's not just the bread for the religious. He's not just the bread for the people who've got it all together. Jesus says he is the bread for the life of verse 52. I am the bread of life for the, for the world, for the world. Everyone, anyone. It's an incredible offer, but what is the life which anyone in the world can receive through him? I've got three things out of that huge sweep of Jesus' teaching uh, that we'll focus on. The first is in verse 35 where Jesus says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now, hunger and thirst, I don't know about you, dissatisfaction, chronic restlessness is the air that we breathe today. You ask, how are you doing? No one ever says, I'm satisfied. We swing between two edges. I'm not having enough, and and I'm sick with having too much, both with food and with everything else. We're either hungry or we're eating. No one's one's satisfied. 
See, we crave, we work to be satisfied. And so we look for it in all sorts of places in the world. We look, we crave to be satisfied in justice, in spirituality, in relationships, in beauty, freedom, truth, and power. These things that we look for satisfaction within and maybe even find it for a brief moment, the honeymoon period as it were. But they are all, as N.T. Wright calls them, broken signposts. In and of themselves, justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, freedom, truth, power are not, cannot be lasting sources of satisfaction. They are all, even spirituality, as Jesus just talked about with spiritual experiences, they are bread that perishes. They don't leave us with lasting satisfaction. We end up hungering and thirsting for more. And so what do we do with that hungering and thirsting and the fact that we can't be satisfied by these things? Some of us, we just give up. We just give up. We make our peace with starving and, and make our peace that, that this is just that life is always being hungry and thirsty for more. But others of us, we take on this posture where we, we believe that we must look somewhere else to finally be satisfied. The problem with my satisfaction is not where I'm looking for it, but the, the unique little individual details on where I'm looking for it too. So if I'm going to be satisfied, then what I need to look on my, is put my attention on some new justice issue that that will be the thing that will finally bring satisfaction within this world. I need some new spiritual experience. I need some new relationship. I need some new, new uh, marriage or new spectacle, some new identity, new truth, new power, new relationship. I need something new. That will be the thing that satisfies me. But they are all broken. And as long as you and I keep coming to them for lasting satisfaction, we just we keep coming up empty. But... N.T. Wright says, they are signposts. Broken as they may be, they are signposts. Beauty, truth, justice, relationships, spirituality, all of these are meant to point us to the I am who can satisfy. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am the bread that satisfies. The one that comes to me will never hunger. The one who comes to me will never thirst. I am the bread of satisfaction. Jesus wants to offer you the life of satisfaction that you crave, a never hunger, never thirst sort of life. And he offers it, once again, the incredible nature is, to anyone and everyone who comes to him. It's an incredible offer that, I get it, apart from him being God, would be a joke, would be insane for me to get up here and have the audacity to say, hey, that deep longing that all of us have within our hearts that drives us insane and keeps you awake at night, that thing that you're just a ping pong ball moving through pinball, moving through your life, bouncing from thing to thing. I, I know where I found it. I know who's got it. And it's this Jesus guy. If I said anybody else, it'd be insane. And yet this is, to me, once again, it's Jesus makes these claims that apart from being God, just make no sense. Only if you have, only if you're radiating the life of God, of creation, can you say, the thing that you long for most is satisfied in me. And so hear me, the healthy church culture, rather than the poison one, doesn't try to satisfy consumers with an experience, but to satiate beggars with the bread of life. To each week, the healthy church community is the one that sets the table with Jesus and invites you to enter the simple task of simply dining on Jesus and coming back to him once again. To truly enter into a life of finding him is satisfying. A life of deep, satisfying, abiding satisfaction is available to you. Gosh, I'm gonna 
throw something. So you guys, I, I know you. I know you. I talked to you all. So many of some of you are new. You're like, you never talked to me. I talked to you when you walked in. But I know y'all are just so dissatisfied with your lives. There's some of you that, that you're still not married and you're dissatisfied over it. There's some of you that you, you did the Jesus thing and you got married at like 19 and now you're dissatisfied with that. There's some of you that haven't had kids and you're dissatisfied. You have had kids and you're dissatisfied with that. You've given yourself to work. You've made huge moves in your career and you're still dissatisfied. The audacity of Jesus is, when are you gonna get off that treadmill and allow me to feed you? Jesus is the bread of life. And in order to feast, it's gonna require you to spit out the bread that perishes and to truly eat for the first time the one who has all that those things have been pointing to. Jesus is the bread that satisfies. Next in verse 37, he says, everyone the Father comes to me, everyone, excuse me, everyone the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. I don't know about you, but relational security and rootedness and safety are, are some of the greatest hungers for us as Angelinos. The more time you live in this city, the more people that have moved away. You know more people in LA that have moved away than have stayed. You know more people who have left you behind and cast you out of your life by going to Nashville than have stayed. The transience of this city destroys your soul and it leaves you hungering to never be cast out. Or is a generation shaped by divorce or parents who walked out on you, the secure attachment of a parent is your deepest longing. To have a the sort of relationship of someone bigger than you that you can trust that's going to protect you and that actually is going to do that and not leave. Or for those of you that are living through the hellscape that is dating in the age of apps, gosh, I just, I, I, me and my wife, we talk about like, if we had a date with, we, I would die, I just wouldn't. Seriously, y'all face a, a constant rejection. Constant rejection. Constant feeling that you have to always be performing in order to obtain the commitment of others. And it might be short-lived. You may pour yourself out for someone, try putting on your best version of yourself and have that still not be good enough. And you're always worried, even when you do get in the relationship, that in the age where you can literally find and date anyone in the whole world by just swiping long enough, that, that there's always someone better than you that they might leave you for. For most all of us, our deepest fear is being cast out, of being left behind. And so what we do is we either keep everyone at an arm's length just waiting with the assumption that you're going to leave sooner or later. So I'm going to keep everyone at the distance where at least it doesn't hurt as bad. Or we are controlled. We have to keep people close. We have to perform. We have to manipulate, grab and bring them close because I don't want to be cast out again. And Jesus here offers you a life of security, safety in him. He says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Not just I will, I will not cast out. He could have just said, I will not cast out. John's writing this all by hand. He's looking to like, where can I edit this and make less words to write? And John knows that there is importance for you and I to hear Jesus say, not just I will not cast you out, but I will never cast you out. For those who come to Jesus, there is safety and security. The word in the Bible is a covenant promise commitment. And so you don't need to keep God at a distance waiting for him to leave you. But also you don't have to perform with these spiritual exercises to get his approval. You already have it, Jesus says. 
You can have this deep sense of rootedness and security no matter the transience of the city that you live in, no matter the rejection of others or even the absence of your parents. But in the words of Psalm 27.10, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. See, this security that Jesus offers, this I will never cast you out, is not just based in himself as a person. It's based in God himself. What does he say? Everyone who the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. You are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. You, you are not a tag along of like God the Father and Jesus are like, all right, the world went to hell. We're gonna make this better. Sure, you can tag along too. Keep up. You are a a wrapped in given gift from the Father to the Son that Jesus has received with so much delight and joy and unlike my kids, does not get tired with his gifts three hours later. (laughs) I will never cast you out. And so of course a healthy church is never gonna hold out practices or exercises as the means for you to achieve this kind of assurance. They're gonna hold out the necessity, come to Jesus. He, he, has, he keeps you safe. You don't have to perform. You don't have to earn. He's not going anywhere. He has you safe. The, the work that the Father requires is just that you listen and learn. Learn from the Father, which Jesus says, is to believe in me, to come to me. Anyone who comes to Jesus, anyone who believes in him, anyone who belongs to Jesus, he says, You'll, I will never cast you out. You are safe. Not just safe in this life, but in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I would raise them up on the last day. You can rest that you are secure, not just in this life that you will be left behind, but that even more, he will raise you up on the last day. The final third fear that we carry, so many of us are crippled by a fear of what the future holds. We look out at the world and it's right now not a great spot. Wars, famine, the economy feels like it's any point now going to fail. Another pandemic, there's balloons now that we have to be worried about. Political upheaval, climate collapse is, is paralyzing for so many, for so many. And that's just at a global scale. That's not to speak of the harrowing potentials of your own life and your relationships and the dynamics of what you feel, the sickness, the cancer, layoffs, relationships falling apart, death. We all have our own lists of the fear that so easily holds us back. But Jesus says in verse 40, this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For those who come to the bread of life, for those who come to I am, our destiny, our destiny is resurrection. Our destiny is raised to life. Your destiny is eternal life. That, if you've come to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, that's where your story is going, regardless of what the world or your life may throw at you. In the words of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, rain, hail. I added those. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, anything present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What's often behind our search for evidence after evidence of the fleeces that we lay out and the manna that we call down from heaven is fear of the unknown, is fear of death and our desire for evidence that proves that God is going to be with us and by our side through it all. But a healthy church culture is one that fosters a resurrection gumption, a boldness and courage in what God has called us to based in what God has already done in promising resurrection. So I don't need to go asking for manna. I don't need to be laying fleeces out in my front yard. Jesus and his resurrection are the evidence that I need, the assurance of my resurrection, and that not even death is going to disrupt the destiny that he has for me. And so I'm more than conquerors. I don't have to be held back by fear. Death itself is a, not even a hiccup in the plan that God has for my destiny. And so this huge invitation of security, of safety, of satisfaction and destiny is open. It's the bread for the, for the world. There's not one of you here that this invitation isn't for. Jesus has set a universal world-sized table But no matter how big the table is, no matter how many open seats there are, the reality is you won't be fed unless you sit down and eat. This is why in verse 52, as the crowd begins to ponder at his metaphor choice, they begin to grumble. Jesus flips from the open and plural, anyone and everyone, to the singular and particular, you, you, the one who, the one who. He doubles down on the metaphor and he he zooms in on the singular. Verse 53, unless you, not anyone who eats the flesh anymore, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life. Verse 54, the one who has eternal life, what's he talking about here? That personal destiny invitation moves from universal to now it's your personal destiny. Verse 56, the one who remains in me and I in him. What is he talking about here? Not just the universal security of his people, but the one, the individual, the personal, the you. Verse 58, the one who does feast on me, unlike the manna that perishes, will have personal satisfaction into eternity. The table is set, but you gotta sit down and eat it for yourself. It's an open invitation. It's even one that the Father must draw a woo and bring us into. But Jesus says, you have to believe, you have to come to me, and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But this is the metaphor that goes too far. For them, the third piece here, which we're gonna go through, we're gonna see how well we can do this. For them, this word, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, is, 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 is an offense It's not a fun invitation. It's as weird and strange to you as it was to them, even more so for them. Cannibalism and even drinking blood, both were forbidden in the Torah. And so this is why they ask in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then verse 60, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? The crowd becomes disillusioned, grumbling, confused, offended, horrified at what Jesus has called them to do. And Jesus doesn't try to clear things up for them. They're saying this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus goes, y'all, it's a metaphor. So what I'm talking about here is the bread. It's me. Believe in me. That's all I'm saying. He doesn't do that. He allows them to scratch their heads. And then he even doubles down on it. He doesn't clear things up. He goes, the fact that you don't get this means that you guys are not open to what the spirit wants to do in you. You don't want to receive this life. He goes, even if I just right here shot up into heaven, you would not believe me. And so, verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. And he just lets them leave before turning to the inner circle of his disciples, Peter and the 12, verse 67. You don't want to go away too, do you? 
Jesus even gives the 12 the opportunity to leave if they wished. He doesn't clarify his words for them. He lets the mystery, the confusion, the difficulty just hang over their decision. And this is the point that all week long, teaching, one of the big things of like being a teacher is, preaching is inviting people, setting the table for people to come to Jesus. Big, open, universal invitation. And I'm like, Jesus, why split the crowd over a good, but let's be honest, pretty weird metaphor. Why not step it back, Jesus? Oh, I can see you guys are confused. Here's what I mean. Why, Jesus, do you just lay it out in this strange, offensive, weird command and then say, take it or leave it? Why aren't you afraid to offend people? Don't you want people to come to you? The more I chewed on it this week, I believe Jesus is discerning a fourth hunger in the crowd. They're hungry for an explanation. They will believe, they will follow Jesus only so long as what he calls them to is easy to understand, easy to apply, and fits within their pre-existing assumptions. And so the crowd rejects him because they don't understand him at first glance. They withheld believing in Jesus because they didn't understand Jesus. How many of you have ever felt this way? And maybe you do right now. You come to a season where something in scripture, maybe something the spirit is calling you into doesn't presently make sense. You read the Bible and you go, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? You read Jesus' universal invitation here, but then such an exclusive source. Jesus, you're alone? You alone? You are the only bread of life? This teaching is hard. Or maybe we get into the sexual ethic of Scripture, what the Bible says about gender or marriage or parenting and money and time, or, or even probably more harrowing is his teaching on loving your enemy and forgiving. Who can accept it? What do you do when your hunger for experiences isn't met, but following Jesus feels ordinary? Or what, are, what do you do when your experience of Jesus doesn't feel ordinary, but it actually is suffering, loss, and pain? What do you do when your exercises aren't the practices, the disciplines, the works, the habits that you've taken on that have done so much work in, in shaping you into a person of love in Jesus? What do you do when those practices don't provide the rest, the intimacy, and the life that they used to? What do you do when the evidence that you've been given isn't the evidence that you'd like to believe? What do you do in all of these things when there either is no explanation or the explanation doesn't presently answer all of your questions? One option, like the crowd, is to leave the Jesus we don't understand. But Peter gives us another when he says, Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and the rest of the 12 were just as confused as the crowd. Jesus doesn't give any, hey, guys, here's what I mean for them. But because they believe in the identity of Jesus, they trust him as the one with eternal life. They are surrendered to him as the one who comes from God. Though you may not, Jesus, be someone that I totally understand right now, I do believe you're someone that I can trust. Oswald Chambers writes, faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you cannot understand at the time. Now, this does not mean that the calling of Jesus is to blind faith, that we do not pursue understanding. We certainly do. We read and we teach the Bible each week. I meet and talk with y'all as a pastor. We do classes and we do the work of theology, recommended resources. We absolutely are pro-understanding, but we do not base our belief on it. St. Augustine wrote, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Christian faith is belief 
seeking understanding, seeking to understand what it believes, believing in order that it might understand. Understanding is the goal of belief, but it's not the basis. So between the crowd and Peter, the question for you is, what are you going to do when Jesus promises you satisfaction and security and a destiny, but you don't understand and you're confused at how it's gonna come about? Will you leave or will you stay? Will you trust Jesus and look for understanding? As we close, Peter and the 12 who heard, though not understanding Jesus' word of eating and eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but they stayed with him anyway. Time passed without Jesus ever giving an answer, but then on the night before his arrest, the night before his crucifixion and death, he gathered with the same 12 for a Passover meal. Luke 22. He took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. He gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he then took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is also poured out for you. The words that had brought so much confusion, the word that had been one of offense, the thing that had been a stumbling block to so many for those who stayed became the greatest promise and place of meeting God. For those who stayed, the offense became a promise. What Peter and the 12 didn't understand back then was that for Jesus, for all, everything that he's saying in, that, in, in what we just read to be true, in order for Jesus to be the bread that gives life to the world would mean that he would have to become the bread that was broken to give that life. What they didn't understand back then was that for Jesus to be, as Peter uh, said, the Holy One of God, meant that the climax of his mission would be the cross. What they did not understand, what was a stumbling block and confusion for them, was that for him to give this eternal life, he would have to enter into death to secure that victory. What they did not understand was that for him what they didn't understand was that for us to receive and to believe in him meant receiving his body given for them and his blood poured out for them. You see, the crowd was hungry for an explanation, but Jesus gave us the Eucharist with the communion of the Lord's Supper. We, we hunger to understand so we can trust, but Jesus gave himself, proving himself as the one that we can trust even when we don't understand. And in doing so, Jesus gave this weekly meal when we come to eat the bread, to drink the cup, we come to remember and receive his body broken and his blood shed. We come hungry, craving, starving for Jesus, for the bread of life. And when we come forward, we enter into the experience of our satisfaction. As we come to the table, we enter into the miracle, the miraculous moment that is the mystery of real presence, that as we take and eat and drink, we are met by the one that all of those broken signposts pointed to. At the table, our hunger for justice, spirituality, relationship, beauty, freedom, truth, and power, they're all satisfied in Jesus. Similarly, when we come to the table, we enter into an exercise in our security. It's a weekly habit that we do, but not one that we do to earn the Father's seal of approval, but as a reminder of how it was given. A weekly reminder that for the past seven days and for the next seven, no matter my failures or what's been done or said to me, I, I come to the table and I'm reminded once again, he will never cast out, he will not lose me. And also when we come to the table, it's an evidence for our destiny. That as we receive the sign of God's great love for us, Jesus going to the cross, his body being broken, his blood shed for us, this becomes our great source of courage in a world of fear. 
This is our evidence that God is for us. He who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us everything that we need and secure us and keep us safe for it all and resurrect us in the end? And so are you hungry? Are you hungry for the life that satisfies? Are you hungry for a life that's secure? Are you hungry for a life with an unshakable destiny? Are you hungry for the bread of life? That's the one prerequisite that Jesus would have for us here, is hunger. Hunger. And that you bring your hunger to him as the one who can satisfy, that you come to him to eat and drink, to feast, and to find yourself met by the bread of heaven. Let's pray.